missiles fired at Kyiv as African delegation visits. KYIV, Ukraine, after days of reprieve, Russian missiles were fired at the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv, on Friday, where explosions were heard as a delegation of top African officials visited the city. The blasts echoed across Kyiv before noon as Ukrainian air defenses engaged Russian missiles in the skies overhead. There were no immediate reports that missiles had hit any objects in the capital, and the Kyiv City Military Administration said in a statement that six hypersonic Kinzhal missiles, among the most sophisticated conventional weapons in Russia's arsenal, six-caliber cruise missiles and two reconnaissance drones had been detected and destroyed during the Friday attack. But local officials also warned of a potential for future aerial attacks. A residential building in the Kyiv region was apparently damaged during the aerial attack, according to a Facebook post from the regional police force, but it was unclear whether it was a direct hit or a result of falling debris. The daytime attack came as a delegation of African presidents and diplomats from Egypt, the Republic of Congo, Senegal, South Africa, Uganda and Zambia visited the Ukrainian capital on what they have billed as a peace initiative. The delegation is expected to travel next to Russia to meet with President Vladimir V. Putin. Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmytro Kaleba, condemned the missile attack in a post on Twitter. Putin builds confidence by launching the largest missile attack on Kyiv in weeks, exactly amid the visit of African leaders to our capital, he wrote. Russian missiles are a message to Africa, Russia wants more war, not peace. As the alarm sounded, the Ukrainian Air Force warned of the threat of ballistic missiles, forcing businesses to lock their doors and parents to once again rush with their children to air raid shelters. Air defense missiles could be seen streaking in the skies overhead as thunderous booms rattled windows in several Kyiv neighborhoods. Vitaly Klitschko, the mayor of Kyiv, said in a statement that there were reports of an explosion in one of the city's districts. Less than an hour later, the alert warning of further incoming missiles had ended. Kyiv has a robust air defense system, and for much of May, aerial assaults against the city were mostly intercepted. In recent days, Russia seemed to target other Ukrainian cities with missile attacks, bringing destruction to civilian areas far from the front line. In those smaller cities, where fewer air defenses are usually available, intercepting missile strikes prove challenging at times. The State of the War In a video posted while an air raid alert was still active in the capital, Vincent Maguena, a spokesman for the office of the South African president, said that Mr. Ramaphosa had arrived here safely. The South African president visited the Kyiv suburb of Bucha, where the New York Times and others have documented Russian atrocities after Moscow's invasion and was waiting for talks to begin with Mr. Zelensky. The stakes of the war are particularly high for Africa, which has seen crucial supply chains, particularly for agricultural products, disrupted because of the fighting. As you all know Africa has been severely impacted by this conflict in terms of food insecurity, price of grain, price of fertilizer, Mr. Meguena said, but equally, this mission serves to seek a road to peace that will elevate the suffering that has been experienced by the people in Ukraine. The peace initiative was announced last month by Mr. Ramaphosa, just days after the United States ambassador to South Africa accused the country of providing arms to Russia for the war. South Africans' officials have denied the claim. 
More than a dozen African countries have abstained from United Nations votes to condemn Russia or call on its withdrawal from Ukraine, with a handful voting in support of Russia. South Africa and other countries on the continent have firmly maintained that it was best to take a neutral stance on the war, saying that they could better serve the situation by trying to broker peace. The leaders of the Republic of Congo, Egypt and Uganda had also planned to travel to Ukraine but will be sending representatives instead, a spokesman for the South African president told News24, a South African news outlet, though there was no explanation for why. The delegation was organized in part by Jean-Yves Olivier, a wealthy French businessman with a decades-long history of engaging in peace negotiations for countries across Africa. But Mr. Olivier has also been, viewed with some suspicion, for his close ties to the Congolese president, Denis Sassou Nguesso. Mr. Olivier told several news organizations that the delegation came about through conversations he had had with heads of state in several African countries with whom he is close. He said that the first order of business in talks with Mr. Zelensky and Mr. Putin would be to discuss potential prisoner swaps and strengthening agreements that allow fertilizer exports from Russia. In an article in Newsweek, he said the mission could achieve progress by starting a dialogue on subjects that interest the two countries and will not directly impact, at the beginning, the military situation on the ground. And there will be a stack of dialogues, he added. And from this dialogue, we believe that that can lead to other issues and at least to open the prospect for settlement. NATO defense ministers were weighing on Friday how to bolster Europe's defense and whether Ukraine will be allowed to join the military alliance, two issues that will loom over other goals at the alliance's annual summit next month. Jens Stoltenberg, the NATO secretary-general, said that Friday's session to finalize plans for the summit in Vilnius, Lithuania, would focus on how to help defense manufacturers meet an increase in demand for weapons that followed Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. He also said the talks, capping two days of discussions in Brussels, would examine how to compel member states to spend 2% of domestic GDP on national defense. Although that has been the NATO spending threshold for years, some countries, including Germany and Luxembourg, still fall short of it. But the biggest question at the Vilnius gathering will be whether, or when, to include Ukraine in NATO. The matter has divided alliance members, with some states on NATO's eastern flank, closer to Russia, pushing to give Ukraine strong assurances for its eventual inclusion. Other nations, including the United States and Germany, have signaled that they are prepared to offer a long-term security commitment of weapons, training, and other support to Ukraine, enough to pose a continued deterrent to Russia. But some states are still reluctant to include Ukraine in the military alliance, in part because of concerns about endemic corruption. In the 16 months since President Vladimir V. Putin of Russia ordered the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, we face the most serious threat to Euro-Atlantic security for a generation, Mr. Stoltenberg told the defense chiefs in brief public remarks on Friday as the talks resumed. He said that because of the war in Ukraine, as many as 40,000 troops under NATO's direct command and more from domestic militaries were on high alert, all backed by significant air and maritime assets. He also noted that the number of battle units from the Baltics to the Black Sea, which separates Russia and the southernmost NATO states, had doubled over the past year. President Biden and other Western leaders who are expected to attend the summit in Vilnius will take decisions to further strengthen our deterrence and defense, Mr. Stoltenberg said.
It is unlikely that Ukraine would be asked to join NATO while the war with Russia is continuing. Many Western officials do not want to be drawn more directly into the conflict, and a key tenet of NATO's collective defense pact is that an attack on one member state is considered an attack against all. The ruler of the United Arab Emirates met with President Vladimir Putin of Russia on Friday in St. Petersburg to discuss the need for a political solution to the war in Ukraine and ways to strengthen his country's relationship with Moscow, according to a statement published by the Emirati State News Agency. Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed, one of the most influential leaders in the Middle East, traveled with a delegation of senior Emirati officials for his second visit to Russia in the last year. American allies across the Middle East, including the UAE, have maintained close ties to Russia since Moscow's full-scale invasion of Ukraine last year, with Emirati officials arguing that they do not want to be sucked into a struggle between superpowers and prefer to serve as mediators. In December, the Emirati capital, Abu Dhabi, was the site of a U.S.-Russia prisoner swap in which Brittany Griner, an American basketball star detained in Russia on drug charges, was released in exchange for Victor Bout, a Russian arms dealer. Dubai, the largest Emirati city and a global business hub, has also emerged as a wartime harbor for elite Russians who dock their yachts in the city's marinas and shop for property in its high-end neighborhoods. Some American officials say that the UAE is not doing enough to weed out illicit trade with Russia, although Emirati officials maintain that they take action against sanctions violations whenever they find them. During the meeting with Mr. Putin on Friday, which was held at the same time as the annual St. Petersburg Economic Forum, Sheikh Mohammed stressed the importance of finding a political solution to the war in Ukraine through de-escalation, dialogue and diplomacy, as well as the importance of supporting prisoner exchanges between Russia and Ukraine, according to the statement. He also confirmed the keenness of the United Arab Emirates on building bridges of cooperation and establishing partnerships with Russia and different countries of the world, it said. Sheikh Mohammed's delegation on Friday included Sultan Al-Jaber, the chief executive of Abu Dhabi's state oil company and the president of COP28, the United Nations-sponsored climate talks that will take place in the Emirates in November. A Russian activist has died in prison days after describing being tortured and expressing fear for his life, according to his lawyer, which is believed to be the first known death in custody of a Russian opponent of the war in Ukraine. Anatoly Berezikov, 40, died about a month after he was detained by the police in his home in the southern city of Rostov-on-Don and charged with misdemeanors, which he denied. His lawyer, Irina Gak, said he was known to have put up posters around the city promoting the anti-war initiative called I Want to Live, which helps Russian servicemen in Ukraine to surrender, and that it had made him a target. The Rostov region police told local news media that Mr. Berezikov was found without signs of life in his cell on Wednesday, an account that tried to portray his death as a suicide. The police declined to provide additional details when contacted by the New York Times, and no other official has commented on Mr. Berezikov's death. After months of anticipation, Ukraine's forces, newly trained on complex warfare tactics and armed with billions of dollars in sophisticated Western weaponry, launched operations on multiple fronts recently in an effort to dislodge entrenched Russian military units, a counteroffensive that many officials in the United States and Europe say could be a turning point in the 15-month war. Much rides on the outcome. There is little doubt the new military drive will influence discussions of future support for Ukraine as well as debates about how to guarantee its future. 
What remains unclear, though, is exactly what the United States, Europe and Ukraine view as a successful counteroffensive. Publicly, American and European officials are leaving any definition of success to President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine. For now, Mr. Zelensky has not laid out any public goals beyond his off-stated demand that Russian troops must leave the whole of Ukraine. He is known as a master communicator, any perception that he is backing off that broad ambition would risk undermining his support at a critical moment. Privately, U.S. and European officials concede that pushing all of Russia's forces out of occupied Ukrainian land is highly unlikely. Still, two themes emerge as clear ideas of success, that the Ukrainian army retake and hold on to key parts of territory previously occupied by the Russians, and that Kyiv deal the Russian military a debilitating blow that forces the Kremlin to question the future of its military options in Ukraine. The head of the United Nations nuclear watchdog said on Thursday that an embattled nuclear plant in southern Ukraine had enough water in a cooling pond to ensure the plant's safety, at least for now, after a dam disaster raised concerns about the water supply. Rafael Mariano Grossi, the director general of the UN International Atomic Energy Agency, visited the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant after the Novokakovka dam was destroyed last week, draining a reservoir that is a key source of water used to cool the plant's reactors. In a series of video clips posted on Twitter shortly after his visit on Thursday, Mr. Grossi could be seen standing in front of the cooling pond. One of the most serious consequences of the destruction of the Novokakovka Dam has been the decrease in the level of water which is needed to cool the nuclear power plant behind me, he said, adding. An additional concern had been the precise depth of the water remaining in the Kakovka Reservoir itself, which has been rapidly draining since the dam was destroyed. Before he arrived at the plant, Mr. Grossi said that there was a discrepancy between water level readings taken at a thermal power plant near the reactors and measurements taken in the reservoir itself. Knowing the water depth matters for calculations about how best to resupply the cooling pond. Geneva, President Volodymyr Zelensky appealed to Switzerland on Thursday for weapons to repel Russia's invasion, a plea that came as a debate's rages in Bern about whether to relax the country's strict laws to allow other nations to give Swiss-made arms to Kiev. We want to defend ourselves, Mr. Zelensky told the Swiss parliament in a 10-minute address by video link from Kiev. If you protect us, you protect the world against war. Switzerland, whose arms industry makes badly needed ammunition, as well as Leopard 2 battle tanks, has been debating its long-standing policy of neutrality and whether to change its rules against the sale or re-export of arms to countries at war. The right-wing Swiss People's Party had criticized the invitation to Mr. Zelensky to speak as a violation of the country's neutrality. I know there is a discussion in Switzerland about the exportation of war material to protect and defend Ukraine, Mr. Zelensky said, but he added, that would be vital. We need weapons so we can restore peace in Ukraine. He went on to invite Switzerland to hold a global peace summit, suggesting that it could play a leading role in such an event and bring to bear its expertise in mediation. Last year, Switzerland turned down two requests from Germany to allow sales of Swiss-made ammunition to Ukraine and from Denmark to sell armored vehicles. Earlier this month, Parliament voted against allowing the re-export of Swiss armaments to third countries. But Switzerland's position appears to be softening. On Wednesday, Switzerland's lower house of Parliament voted in favor of allowing the sale of 25 Leopard tanks to Germany.
The sale would be on the condition that Germany did not re-export the tanks to Ukraine, but as a practical matter the Swiss tanks can be used to replace tanks Germany has already donated to Ukraine. Switzerland is in the heart of Europe and surrounded by friendly states, Francisca Roth, a member of the lower house commented in its debate. We need to provide broad support in this so that Russia doesn't win this war.